You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. From May 13th to the 15th, 2016, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism was held in New York City. From the reports of friends and colleagues who attended, it was a fun and educational conference promoting science-based medicine and critical thinking. On the last day of the conference, speaker John Horgan, author of The Cross-Check Column for Scientific American Magazine, took to the stage for a talk titled, Dear Skeptics, Bash Homeopathy and Bigfoot Less... Mammograms in War, More. The next day, Horgan posted the content of the talk on his Scientific American blog, and a lively debate ensued involving responses from notable skeptics, including neurologist Dr. Stephen Novella, physicist Dr. Lawrence Krauss, linguist Dr. Stephen Pinker, psychologist Dr. Michael Shermer, and evolutionary biologist Dr. Jerry Coyne. Was Horgan correct? Is it time to put Bigfoot skepticism to rest? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. When we recorded the interview for this episode, John Horgan's Nexus talk was still weeks away, and I had no idea how timely our interview with today's guest, Eugenie Scott, would turn out to be. We are constantly concerned with how to use the limiting framework we've chosen, that of monsters, to discuss useful and meaningful science content. I will summarize the Horgan article, but I would encourage you to go to monstertalk.org and look at the show notes where you can find a link to his original article and the many fascinating responses and critiques that it generated. As the article's headline suggests, Horgan says, researching Bigfoot and homeopathy are a waste of time. He also says that skeptics and science fans misapply their standards to nifty ideas that they like and ignore big battles that could save lives. To quote his own summary, I'm asking you skeptics to spend less time bashing soft targets like homeopathy and Bigfoot and more time bashing hard targets like multiverses, cancer tests, psychiatric drugs, and war, the hardest target of all. 
Steve Novella's initial response was very much like my own, chiefly that it felt like Horgan's arguments were well-reasoned strikes at some strawman version of capitalist skeptics that seemed very unfamiliar to me. Secondly, it seemed like Horgan was demanding skeptics dismiss work on targets that Horgan deemed unworthy. If you only have time to work on debunking one thing this week, shouldn't it be the case for war and not a cast of a Bigfoot track? That kind of argument feels powerful, and perhaps some readers will feel compelled to drop everything and join the anti-war movement. But could it be that Horgan is setting up a false dichotomy? Is the only choice to either hunt Bigfoot or stop war? And right here is where I'm going to step away from Horgan's argument. What happens when I think about his argument is that a vast arsenal of ideas come to my mind. Am I biased? Is he biased? Is his argument rational? Is my argument rational? Where is his evidence? Where is my evidence? What fallacies are at play here? What is all that stuff buzzing around inside my head? It is skepticism. And where did I learn it? From Bigfoot. Well, not directly, but I'm not really joking either. As I said before on the show and at conferences, in the world of cryptozoology, we see all the world of belief writ small. Tackling cryptozoological questions such as monster stories in the news, anecdotes heard at a party, legends told by campfires, these all give you an opportunity to investigate a fantastic claim. In the course of this show, we've discussed how perception is constructed in the brain, how memories cannot be trusted, how biases skew interpretation of evidence, how evidence can be hoaxed, how we seek patterns, how we're motivated to trust our own hunches and to vigorously defend them even when they're irrational. Thousands of people have listened to this show and have sharpened their minds on the whetstone of Bigfoot. John Horgan stood up and talked at a conference with a few hundred attendees and said that science doesn't need cheerleaders, it needs critics. I would posit that since Horgan didn't seem to know exactly what capital S skeptics actually do, that perhaps his ignorance of us was his best critique of our efforts. We need to work harder than ever to raise awareness of the scientific method, of critical thinking, and of the need for skepticism. Skepticism is a toolkit. Whether you use that toolkit to fight pseudoscience, to look for monsters, to combat medical quackery, or to advocate for world peace, you still need to start with getting your tools together. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm a Bigfoot skeptic. And this is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Coming up, Dr. Karen Stolzno and I interview another prominent Bigfoot skeptic, Dr. Eugenie Scott. Monster Talk. Dr. Eugenie Scott is a physical anthropologist, a former university professor, and the founding executive director of the National Center for Science Education, serving from 1987 through to 2014. She now serves on their advisory council. And Eugenie has been a leading researcher and activist in the creationism versus evolution controversy, and she is the author of Evolution versus Creationism, and also the co-editor of Not in Our Classrooms, Why Intelligent Design is Wrong for Our Schools. So uh, Eugenie is also a very well-respected skeptic, and in her role as anthropologist, we're going to talk with her about Bigfoot skepticism today. Yeah, thanks for coming onto the show. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and and a proud Bigfoot skeptic. Yeah. <laughs> so so can you tell us a little bit? I mean, I think most of our listeners who do know your work are going to know about it from the uh, your struggles against uh, creationism in school. But 
You also have uh, talked a lot about Bigfoot. So can you tell us about your background and how you developed an interest in Bigfoot, the Yeti, and other wild men of the forest? You know, I'm a physical anthropologist or biological anthropologist by training. And so my first university level teaching and research was in that field. And of course, that is quite central to this whole issue of are there giant primates someplace in the world, uh, supposedly many places in the world, that have yet to be discovered and described. And I think my first kind of realization about uh, that, that my discipline would have something to do with this was when I was an undergraduate student. I was an anthropology major at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And one of the physical anthropologists there, a, a wonderful man, now deceased, named Neil Tappan, who was a primate specialist, um, we were talking about yetis. And I was saying, I was, uh, you know, I was an undergraduate, okay? So <laughs> shall we say my views were not fully formed in all <laughs> in all ways. And, you know, I remember, footnote, there isn't a physical anthropologist alive that would not love for there to be a Bigfoot. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, but so I was talking with Neil, or as he was at the time, Dr. Tappan, about you know, well, the Yetis. And you know, there are these reports, and they've found scalps, and they've found this and that. And uh, and then there's Bigfoot, too, which is I don't know that much about, but he's supposed to live out on the West Coast. And, and, and Neil just kind of looked at me, and he said, I would be very happy to go on the second Yeti expedition. <laughs> In other words, after they've... Once you find the first one, I'm all ears. <laughs> I will be happy to apply my professional expertise was the context of that. And then I realized, oh, yeah, this is there really isn't any really good evidence for this now, is there? And it really made me stop and think about, OK, now how do you really look at Bigfoot? And I think just that. That somewhat somewhat snarky uh, comment that uh, one of my professors made really did get me started thinking about um, uh, these wild men of the woods um, in in more of a professional context. And so I'm going to use the term Bigfoot just as a kind of catch-all for all of the other terms that are out there, like Yetis and Sasquatch. Um, and I guess, Very appropriate. I agree. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the most common terms that a lot of American people would use anyway. So... Um, how far back do these Bigfoot sightings go? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, according to some of the pro-Bigfoot uh, people, uh, they go all the way back to the Revolutionary War, at least the 1700s, um, and they will uh, the, the Bigfoot, Bigfoot proponents will cite diary entries or uh, early newspaper accounts of of um, uh, a large creature seen in uh, Farmer Jones's barnyard who stole a chicken or whatever. And of course, um, as is often the case with, uh, with um, these alleged Bigfoot sightings, it can easily be explained more simply as being another creature or even another human and they're stealing the chickens. <laughs> um, but the, it, it, was really, it was really around the 1950s that um, the Bigfoot um, uh, uh, enthusiasm, shall we say, really got rolling. Um, and, you know, I, I think at this point you almost want to ask a folklorist, um, somebody who studies 
these kinds of human cultural patterns as to, you know, what would it be about the 50s that might have encouraged this kind of enthusiasm? What right. was it that made these ideas attractive at this point? And uh, I mean, you know, we, we have some some quite wonderful uh, uh, historical tracing, shall we say, of the um, uh, of, of the of the alien uh, visitor uh, syndrome, as it were, um, the um, the grays, the large-headed almond-eyed forms, you know, which which can actually be traced back very nicely to a a movie in which this particular um, a constellation of of physical features was attached to an alien, and then uh, a supposed alien witness. Um, possibly conflating that movie with uh, dreams or hallucinations or whatever, describe the alien as looking very, very much like the alien in this rather obscure movie. And that sort of created this whole meme. I don't think we have anything quite so firm for the origin of Bigfoot, but it seems that the, the in the United States, anyway, the sightings and the accounts seem to begin in earnest in, in around the 50s. And of course, they have not let up since. Mm-hmm. They do. Um, a lot of stuff came out of the fifties. It's, it's very interesting. We're going to have another episode about um, the history of uh, UFO uh, enthusiasm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I, I a think, good term, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it is, and and I, I agree with you uh, that folklore definitely plays a part in this, and it, it may be a better way to look at this. In fact, uh, previous episode had paleontologist Darren Nash on, and and one of his conclusions in his book on cryptozoology is that. Whether or not cryptids are real, it really becomes more of a folklore issue than a um, a scientific or biology issue. So, I think certainly in terms of the enthusiasm of non scientists, of sort of uh, normal people, as it were, um, who uh, don't work as scientists and might have an interest in science. Certainly, we're all we're all. We're all in, in, encouraging a science fandom. Everybody, you know, and, and anybody like me and, and like you guys would would like even more people to be interested in science. So that's not a criticism. But I think people who maybe don't have a great deal of scientific background, particularly in and how to ask questions of a scientific nature about a, about a natural phenomenon and how to how to test those uh, the answers to those questions in a way that would give you reliable information. The, the, the fact that that very little real scientific application is being directed toward uh, the Bigfoot phenomenon, you end up with uh, an awful lot of amateurism, mm-hmm. which means a lot more. Uh, well, and, and this is not a criticism of amateur science because some of it can be very good. But I think in this case, what we end up with is a lot of. <sighs> credulous um, uh, acceptance of evidence without really examining it carefully and, and uh, comparing it. Now, it, 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 it is not, I, I, should, I should be very clear, it's not completely the case that there are no scientists interested in Bigfoot. I mean, there's my fellow physical anthropologist, Jeff Meldrum, um, uh, who has written a book on this subject, uh, Legends Meet Science. And he's um, written a number of articles, and he's, you know, he's a serious guy. He's not a nut. <laughs> I mean, Jeff's a good guy. I like him. Um, and I respect him. Um, and, you know, he's, he's trying to apply the, the methods of science. But I think, I think in terms of the phenomenon in general, it's much more of a, of a folkloristic thing. There's something very attractive about the idea of this giant primate 
who uh, in, in one of the interpretations of Bigfoot might even be a Paleolithic relic. There's this idea that uh, Bigfoot and Yeti and you know these, these giant uh, primates around the world are really reliced um, Gigantopithecus, which was a uh, an early primate fossil, not a human fossil, but um, um, an ape fossil uh, from, but but really very very early um, in the Pleistocene, and and the probability that there would still be relic populations around is, is vanishingly small. Yeah, I, but you know it's interesting to me that there, there is. Um, I don't think this is unique to me, but it's my own terminology. It seems like there's sort of like tier one questions about scientific ideas and then there's tier two questions and there's a lot of tier two questions going on here's an example a tier two question might be how do bigfoot mates and where do they nest or how you know what do they eat but the tier one questions are are they real right <laughs> so i see yeah. a lot more things coming out around the you know interesting facts about bigfoot but they are skipping the more important layer one questions which are does it exist is it real is it a real thing before we get into how it works and you know how do they have language right right (laughs) we we have to really determine if it's even a real animal so that's i i agree i mean it's sort of the you know what kind of bridle do you put on a unicorn question yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so so all that was you know you know how you know you know how the the world is divided into into two kinds of people those that divide everything into two parts and everybody else. Yeah, that's um, wow. so. I also have my two-part dichotomy <laughs> for you. There's 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 two kinds of of, of Bigfoot um, uh, aficionados. There's one group that believes that Bigfoot is paranormal, that Bigfoot is is a a sprite or a supernatural form of some sort. Um, that Bigfoot is a um, you know can can disappear at will and appear, you know is a is a um, uh, shapeshifter and Hyper, so forth. Yeah. And so, yeah, <laughs> no, that, that that it has a kind of magical power. It's really a magical uh, kind of creature. And then there are those who think that which we have really been talking about, who believe that Bigfoot is uh, a a real corporeal um, form, a giant primate, perhaps a relict uh, Gigantopithecus or other Paleo uh, Pleistocene form. Um, you know, the, the first class of Bigfoot supporters, somebody like me can't talk to. I mean, you know, I if you are if you are uh, conceptualizing a creature as being magical or supernatural, you know, live and be well, but we can't really have a conversation because there is no way to to test something like that scientifically, because you can always make up new facts that would explain away why uh, certain things do or do not happen. But if you think that Bigfoot is a real corporeal creature, then I think your tier one, tier two division is a very useful kind of heuristic to to think about. Um, I think a lot of people do leap into the tier two questions about what are the details, um, you know, what, what what is the range of Bigfoot and what is the diet in this place versus that place. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Tier two questions do certainly um, certainly inform that tier one question, because if you keep finding, which is has been my experience, that 
you know, we here's a claim that Bigfoot lives in Texas, and and there's a map of sightings of Bigfoot in Texas, and um, you know, the, there's sightings of Bigfoot in the eastern part of Texas, which is pretty well watered and actually kind of more like Louisiana. It's kind of you know swampy and and, and wet, uh, and uh, moist and humid. And then there's also spottings of Bigfoot in um, the far western plains, where it's really a lot more like you know Utah and and and, um, and Arizona, New Mexico, where it's really dry, and you have totally different vegetation, you have totally different uh, climate, and uh, you know the environment is just just strikingly different. Well, okay, what kind of primate can live in those two very different kinds of environments? And what would be the, uh, you know, the food resources of something that's bigger than a gorilla, which is what most people claim for Bigfoot, you know, is like at least 9,000 or more calories a day. Where are you going to get that kind of diet in Western Texas versus Eastern Texas? Once you start asking those kinds of, if this is true, then this must be true. Is this true? Well, gosh, that makes us question the original, you know, the original hypothesis. Then you're really dealing you're dealing with the tier two details type of questions, but those really help inform you as to whether, as to the probability that there really is a Bigfoot, that there really is a tier one, is this creature real? So I actually see those two tiers as being very closely related. And I'm not sure you can actually answer the tier one question until you look into the tier two questions. So Bigfoot sightings are apparently very common, um, but does the frequency of the claims and that they're so spread across the country and the world, does it make the possibility of Bigfoot more likely or less likely? You know, reflecting a little bit on creationism in this, in the answer to that context, you find folk tales and stories all over the planet from every single continent, from uh, people, tribal people, and even, you know, um, people living in cities, about floods. Uh, the the idea that a, that a great flood has come and um, and uh, destroyed everything in this area and everything had to start all over again and you know, the basic Noah story is something that is very very widespread as a folkloric element. Well, does that mean there was actually a worldwide flood? Well, it might, but one of the things you do in science is you ask, is there another explanation and what's the best explanation? And when you when you think about this, pretty much, you know, where people tend to settle is where there's water, because we're not really very good at going for long times without water. We really are, you know, a very sweaty, thirsty primate. So, you know, we hang around water. And where there's water, where there's rivers and and bodies of water and stuff, there often are floods. And so it's not surprising that there would be a lot of stories about floods in places where, where early human agriculturalists settled. Similarly, there's something that uh, cultural anthropologists call diffusion, which refers to the spread of a cultural trait, which also applies to the spread of folk tales and other stories. Not only are there lots and lots of cultures that have flood stories, the Cinderella story is something where, where the poor girl um, manages to make a wonderful um, match and uh, marry rich and go off and have a, have a lovely, happy life. That story also shows up in almost as many cultures as there are flood stories. Well, does that mean Cinderella is real? It might be, but it's more likely a matter of diffusion of a, of a folktale that um, was a very attractive one and that resonated with people and 
around the world, and folklorists have studied stuff like this. So when you hear that Bigfoot has been spotted all over, does that mean Bigfoot is uh, present every place in the world? It might be, but is there a better explanation? And it's very easy to confuse a bear or a bison or some other large mammal um, on a dark night uh, rumbling through the bush uh, and, you know, maybe scaring you at your campsite, uh, crossing the road in dim light. Nobody, nobody ever says Bigfoot stepped out under this, you know, in the middle of the day uh, in front of Woolworths downtown. I mean, it's always in some kind of obscure place where the lighting is not good, the sight lines are not good, and it's, you know, it, it's never a really good, clear shot. Nobody ever gets a really clear photograph of one either, even though everybody carries telephones around with, with, um, with uh, very good cameras in them these days. So, and, and then there's the matter of diffusion. The idea of a big... Um, wild primate um, living um, in the woods. By the way, I loved Harry and Anderson. <laughs> I love them. You got the, the Sasquatches standing behind trees and, you know, there's, oh, there's the like hundreds the of Anderson. them. Yeah, that's, that is great. Yeah. <laughs> such a great, such, such a great last scene there. Um, but there, there's this, there's this diffusion of this idea of Bigfoots, uh, big feet, uh, Bigfoot, you know, <laughs> specimens that, um, uh, you know, is a very popular idea like Cinderella, like floods, that is uh, easy for people to like and easy for people to spread. And I think that does a great deal toward coloring the um, um, frequency of sightings that we have of this creature. I, I think uh, I think you've echoed something. I, I was listening to uh, some old 1950s radio recordings from the Long John Neville show, which is something I want to talk about in a future monster talk because... Um, that radio show came out of New York and had a, a lot of impact on um, pop culture and spreading uh, UFO stories and that sort of thing. Anyway, Arthur C. Clarke was on as an expert uh, about space items, and he, he was being talked to about the number of flying saucer sightings that there are. And, and the, mm -hmm. the host was talking about, well, there's so many sightings, surely that means there's probably something to this. And he said, actually... The fact that we see all of these sightings but have no physical evidence suggests the opposite. It suggests that because of the frequency but the lack of physical evidence, it's actually less likely and more likely a cultural phenomenon. And I thought, wow, that's really a, interesting. A very good insight. Yeah. <laughs> he had a hard I, I time making I, it come across to the audience, but I think he nailed it, and you did too. So. And you know, I've often thought about UFOs too. I mean, there are UFOs. There are visual phenomena in the skies that are unidentified, but most of them are identified. And what you're talking about is the residual of funny little lights or patterns or something, you know, some movement of, of uh, a light or sound in the sky that is, is as yet unexplained. Um, and, but, but the fact that there are some that are unexplained doesn't mean that you say, aha, there is real. <laughs> The truth is out there. Yes, there are UFOs. Yes, there are space aliens. The fact that there are unexplained things doesn't mean that your conclusion about causation, that these are manifestations of extraterrestrials, is correct. It just means that it hasn't been explained yet. Yeah. And that is, that, that is also, I think, very relevant to uh, the Bigfoot phenomenon. We have 
hair samples. We have nowadays, of course, in the last 10, 20 years, we have DNA samples. We have um, things that are claimed to be remnants. We, of course, we've had footprints for decades. Um, and in every case where we've had hair or scalp or DNA samples and, and they have been analyzed, those are sort of UFO, those are unidentified uh, Bigfoot. Every case that have that we have done good scientific testing of these phenomena, they've turned out to be uh, horses or bison or bear or some other kind of known mammal. And uh, and you know this is these these uh, data have actually been published. That doesn't mean that there aren't still some unexplained Bigfoot phenomena. Um, you you can pretty much take the Patterson film, which is as you guys know and probably most of your listeners know, is this very famous film taken up in Bluff Creek, California, of an alleged Bigfoot uh, that to everybody kind of on our side of this issue looks a whole lot like a tall guy in a gorilla suit. Um, but you know this this was thought to be a very persuasive um, uh, evidence that there was a Bigfoot up there in Northern California. But if you can explain, you know, why the Patterson film is not likely to be that of a real creature, and there's, you know, a whole lot of analyses that are done about this, you can explain many of these phenomena. There's probably still going to be a residual somewhere of stuff that you can't explain. So what should be your proper conclusion? Well, just like with UFOs and aliens, your conclusion is not, aha, therefore there is a Bigfoot. Your conclusion is, hmm, there might be a Bigfoot, but we don't know yet. And we don't know yet is probably the phrase that you hear most frequently from scientists. And we're okay with that, but I think a lot of the a lot of members of the public really find that unsatisfactory because they really want to know now. But that's not how science works. There's a fantastic YouTube video that you appear on. It's of the Ask a Scientist talk that you did back in 2009. And uh, during the Q&A session, uh, someone had asked you about the possibility of Bigfoot's existence, and you said that there's a 5% chance that Bigfoot exists, and we won't hold you to that figure. Um, but does this mean that the Bigfoot mystery is not solved? Well, you know, I think I think I, I was actually thinking about that talk uh, the other day when I was, uh, you know, trying to review some thoughts before we recorded this podcast. I think what I said then was, you know, there's maybe a five percent chance on a really good day rounding up. <laughs> was and you being an optimist, and me being a real optimist. <laughs> yes, that was a best case scenario. Um, I think that. You know, I, I think you have to leave room for the unknown. Um, we, no scientist is going to say we know everything there is to know about everything, and you know, we all know much better than that. Um, we know a whole lot. I'm not saying that we don't know anything, but we still have. This is a this is a wonderful universe we live in, and we have lots of things yet to explain and understand. And you know, there might be. Um, Unknown uh, primates to be discovered. I think it's high. I think it's really unlikely. And I think the larger they are, the less likely that's going to be. Because, you know, just sort of basic mammalian biology, large animals require lots of calories. What kind of calories you get, um, you know, whether they're um, it's bulky food like uh, like the leaves and and uh, uh, well, gorillas eat practically all leaves and some fruits that you find in large-bodied 
primates like gorillas, or whether it's um, more concentrated calories like you find in more omnivorous human beings and, and chimpanzees, you still need to take in a lot, just one heck of a lot of calories if you're going to be as big as a gorilla or as big as the Bigfoots claim to be. Where are you going to get that and from what sources? If it's going to be mostly vegetarian, you can't be living in a place like West Texas. You just flat don't have the calories available. You can't be living in a place like the Himalayas in the winter. <laughs> there just aren't, you know, big leafy uh, vegetables to, you know, to, to leave, uh, vegetation to, to, to provide you with the 9,000 plus calories a day that you need. Right. So when you, and, and then there's matters of range. I mean, uh, and population size. What's the minimum population size you need for a large mammal to keep it from going extinct just accidentally by genetic drift? Or, uh, you know, small populations are much more likely to wink out of existence than larger ones. Um, you know, the, the American bison uh, was literally millions of, spe- of individuals in the 1700s and 1800s, and we darn near were able to wipe them out. Um, And that was within a a period of of 30 years or so. I mean, how much easier would it be for a large-bodied primate living in in what obviously must be a relict or uh, uh, not central, uh, not not a very good and rich environment, because otherwise we would have run into them, um, you know, living on the margins of, of, of um, most uh, biomes, uh, what's the prospect of there being a large enough population of these creatures to have persisted since, you know, the Pleistocene? I mean, when you add together all of those probabilities, I think the 5% was wildly optimistic. <laughs> Unfortunately. I mean, it'd be just so cool if there was a, something like Bigfoot around, wouldn't it? I mean, well, wouldn't you guys just love yeah. it? I mean, we would all just do handsprings at the thought. It'd be just so fabulous. It would be. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there's many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. It would be very. I think that's something we've tried to to reiterate on on the show. Um, I, I I think it, much in the same way that the general populace doesn't always understand um, scientific methodology. 
I think they don't always understand skepticism as a as a as a technology either. That's something I want to actually write about in an upcoming blog for Skeptic, uh, which is uh, skepticism as a technology versus as a cultural movement. Because I think uh, a lot of people, especially in the past since like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, have uh, have become aware of skepticism. Um, as a worldview, but don't necessarily, as you talked about science as a, like fan, like fans of science, you could be a fan of science as an enthusiast for science, but uh, probably more important is popularizing the scientific methodology as a way to evaluate what's true and what's not true. Yeah. And the, the idea is thinking like a scientist. Exactly. And, and I agree completely that um, I think we skeptics need to be very careful that the image of skepticism and uh, the picture of a skeptic in somebody's mind isn't somebody standing there with their arms folded across their chest saying, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <A cynic>. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we're all standing around saying, no, you all are wrong. Well, right. I mean, and, and, you know, and, we have as much imagination as anybody else. And we enthusiasm. Have. I mean, you know, and, and I, I think uh, uh, Derek Colandano, um who sets up the, the skeptic track at DragonCon, uh, has done a great job of demonstrating that people who believe uh, uh, that skepticism and scientific uh, thinking as a modality is important also have a really strong ability to enjoy fantasy and science fiction and not real stuff as well. We, it is not about rejecting you know, imagination or anything like that. And it's not about automatically saying no to everything. It's just about how to determine whether things are real or true or, or plausible versus not true or real or plausible. And, and, and I think, I mean, even me, is, I, I love this show, but I love monsters. Uh, I, I've always been an enthusiast about monsters. But at, at some point, I got curious about what's actually plausible, what's real, what's not real. And and it, it's, I don't think we're taking the joy from the world when we just want to know could this be true or is this just an interesting story right so oh yeah i think it's very difficult for um people who aren't raised or trained as skeptics or scientists to think that way well and i i didn't mean to get sidetracked into a uh but we're okay too we like people and stuff (laughs) but and and you know if if our goal and i think i think to some degree there is a, a certain there, there's a certain um, tendency for many skeptics to be proselytizers for science. We, we enjoy science so much; it's important to us, and we've, we've experienced the joy of science that we want other people to uh, experience this as well. So we're, we're kind of, we're kind of proselytizers for science. But I think it's very important that if we want to expand the love of science and critical thinking among other our fellow citizens that we do it in a way that is inviting that, uh, you know, you're not standing there going, Oh yeah, (laughs) you're wrong. You're saying, well, there's another way of looking at it. Have you considered X, Y, and Z? And, you know, start. Jeannie, you do this better than anyone though. (laughs) I I don't think there's anyone in, I don't think there's anyone (laughs) in skepticism that's as diplomatic and uh, as personal as you. Well, I'm interested in results and, you know, shoot, I'm, I turned 70 this last year, and I've been around this planet long enough to know that funny thing happens when you kick somebody in the shins, they tend not to like you much. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that we know 
is that people will be much more likely to accept the views of people they like and trust than those that they don't. And in fact, there's, you know, one of my interests is, is science denialism. Why do people deny good science? And at NCSC, we were interested in why do people deny evolution? And then more recently, why do people deny climate change? And there's actually a literature on this where they have, have done um, a number of surveys and tests and experiments on people to try to understand some of the reasons for this. And one of the, one of the uh, messages that comes out loud and clear from this research is that when you don't understand something, if you don't understand, uh, you know, climate change, you don't have an opinion on climate change, say, and is, is it really anthropogenic or not, you're more likely to accept the views of somebody that you trust than uh, a stranger. Now, the good news for us concerned about anthropogenic climate change is that scientists tend to be people of, uh, that people that are trusted. And, you know, so there's a chance that, <laughs> that we may be able to work on, you know, work on that. But you don't trust somebody who belittles you. You don't trust somebody who, um, who uh, doesn't respect you, you know, because part of trust is also respect. And I guess that's my kind of sermon on the, uh, on the uh, podcast this morning. But, you know, if, if we really are serious about spreading science and critical thinking, we've got to think about what are the most effective ways of doing it. And it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about how much fun you're having pounding that creationist into the ground. It's whether or not you are persuading the people to listen to you. Right. Anyway, that's my my so two cents worth. Catching more flies with honey. Yeah. Precisely. Well, so, <laughs> well I, I actually live in Cobb County, Georgia, so um, which famously had the... Um, Selman versus Cobb County. Exactly. I remember, I remember it well. The stickers on the books that said, uh, basically, this textbook contains material on evolution. Evolution is a theory, not a fact. Regarding the origin of living things, this material should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered. I Did you really, remember that by heart? I, no, I looked it up because I, I just remembered the part where it's a theory, not a fact. That was the part that stuck yeah, in my head. So, me too. One of my least but the whole things. The whole sticker was really just the sort of thing that makes folks like us roll our eyes. And, ah, where do I start? <laughs> There's so many things wrong with that. Exactly. So without going down that rabbit hole, I just wanted to talk a, a little bit about Bigfoot. And, and so uh, why don't science books include Bigfoot and regular known animals? And is there room for both? Why can't we teach the controversy? <laughs> I think for one thing, the K-12 education is so crammed with stuff that kids are expected to learn and alas get tested on but that's another whole controversy there really isn't a lot of time to do ancillary mm -hmm. kinds of stuff like that that said uh i have encouraged oh i'm sorry and the second point on that uh, k-12 um uh, example is that the role of uh kindergarten through 12th grade education is to give kids the basics and they barely get that. Um, that said, I have on more than one occasion uh, talked about using pseudoscience and including Bigfoot um, as a way of teaching science method, um, as a way of teaching kids to be critical thinkers about stuff they're interested in. Because 
kids are interested in pseudoscience. They're interested in Bigfoot. They're interested in dowsing. Dowsing is such a good example. Our friends from the Australian skeptics have provided such wonderful materials, such wonderful videos that, that teachers can use, you know, show a little bit, stop, have the kids discuss it. What are they doing this? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? You can teach blinding and double blinding and control, and you can teach all the basic steps of science in a context that kids are really interested in. You know, does dowsing really work? Um, and, you know, you can use pseudoscience as a way of teaching kids how to think about the natural world. And I think that's very, that's very useful. But just to sort of gratuitously stick it into a chapter on mammals, for example, you know, now we're going to talk about uh, carnivores, and now we're going to talk about artiodactyls, and now we're going to talk about parasodactyls. And oh, yes, there are some people who believe that they're, you know, strange monsters. That's kind of a waste of a kid's time. Right. That's the sort of thing that might come up during question time anyway from the kids. <laughs> And it's useful for teachers to to be able to say, I mean, because, you know, a, a good teacher, well, for a, all teachers know that kids will come up with really off the wall stuff that the teacher doesn't know anything about whatsoever. And a good teacher will use that, you know, that teaching opportunity, so to speak, to model the kind of behavior we want students to use themselves, which is to say, I don't know yet. Let's see if we can find out about that, because that's the way we want people to do things. We don't want people, we don't want students or anybody else to just kind of take the first explanation that comes along that seems plausible. I, I, I really would, I really think that a, a very overlooked aspect of science is this question: Is there another explanation, and what's the best explanation? Because so often, when we hear something that agrees with what we think how things should be, or most of the cases, you know, agreeing with our particular worldviews or prejudices of various kinds, we stop there rather than thinking, well, maybe there's another explanation and which is the better of the two or three or four. And that's when we'll really have critical thinkers. Yeah, the they, um, Bigfoot does get a big representation in the... Um book fairs like uh, I look because my, my kids are in elementary and middle school and so I pay close attention to what goes on in the book fairs because I, I that's uh, something I've always just been really interested in and so I, I was hoping there would be more skeptical books or scientifically focused books no hang, hang on just a second yeah. like, <laughs> but I know what a science fair is I'm not sure I know what a book fair is oh is a book fair a is like it's, like, it's a it's the like scholastic brings in books oh, oh. for like a week um oh, okay. and so it's like a book sale inside the school uh -huh. and oh, I, yeah. okay. we used to have those in australia yeah. when i was a kid yeah. so down here we call them mm -hmm. book fairs i don't know what else they may be called we uh, call it a book week or something a book week. so yeah <laughs> so that's just maybe that's a, a regional term there's diffusion for you yeah <laughs> <laughs> well so it's interesting because i still actually have some of the books that i bought when I was in elementary school, and as an adult, I went back and reread some of them. And uh, some of the monster books that I used to love were by a guy named Daniel Cohen. And it turns out, like rereading them, that he had a really strong skeptical bent. In fact, he was an early uh, fellow of Psychop. Um, but um, great, yeah, and, and they yeah they were fantastic. And I wanted to have him on the show. And when I reached out to him to see if he could come on and talk, it turns out he'd had a stroke 
uh, just oh, a few God. months prior to uh, my trying to contact him. And, and unfortunately, uh, he has never recovered to the point of being able to come on as a guest. Mm. Uh, but oh, he did write some great books. Um, but I just don't see anything like that. In fact, what I see instead are things like, so you want to catch a Bigfoot, which um, <laughs> is actually by the people who uh, do the Finding Bigfoot show. Uh, oh. and, and lots and lots of ghost books. And I mean, there were the Osborne books, you know, back. Oh, yes. Yeah, yep. So. And and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just I wish we had better representation uh, out there in, in those kinds of things. Um, but oh, Daniel um, Loxton does some work. Into he that. does. He does. <laughs> I told him I'd really like to see a, a series of books called instead of Unexplained Mysteries, Explained Mysteries <laughs> <laughs> with an exclamation point. <laughs> anyway, they, they, it's something I'm very interested in, though, because as my kids are going through school, um, I, I want to make sure that they're exposed to the scientific method. And it's hard because, you know, as you say, the teachers have to get through uh, the, the state's requirements. And then there's all kinds of issues with what materials in the textbooks themselves. And, and states like Texas have an oversized uh, influence on the overall national book content for education. And it's, it, you know, you're painfully aware of this. <laughs> yeah. I and think... inc- incidentally, though, if I could just make a, a slight side comment there. Sure. Texas has in the past had an inordinate influence on the content of textbooks in other parts of the country. But things have changed with digital and modular publication. Um, a number of years ago, um, I was very pleased that a California state legislator uh, proposed a bill. This this was this was in regard to a fight that was going on at the time, like 2010 or 11, something like that, in Texas over the history standards. And the Texans were doing all sorts of bizarre things, like taking Jefferson out of the Enlightenment and <laughs> they putting Phyllis Schlafly and other religious conservatives in as prominent Americans and stuff like. You know, they, they, it was just ridiculous stuff going on, but. Um, this California state legislator uh, proposed a bill that would direct the Department of Education to not purchase any textbooks from any history textbooks from publishers that included those scientific those uh, Texas requirements, and that's basically what you have to do uh, if you don't want if if uh, you're in Atlanta uh, if Georgia doesn't want to have crappy textbooks. It needs to tell the publishers, no, we want a Georgia edition with that stuff out because they'll be, you know, they, they the publishers find it cheaper to do one edition for the whole country so if they can get by with it. They'll do a Texas edition and then we'll be stuck with it in Minnesota and you know Georgia. But if you say, uh-uh, we don't want that, that's, you know, that's bad science or that's bad history or that's bad whatever the subject is, we want you to put these things in the books, the Publishers will eventually, you know, salute smartly and and do what they need to do to make the sale. But you have to kind of stand up for good scholarship uh, to the publishers because, you know, they're going to do the thing that's most cost effective for them, which is to let the big states like Texas rule the roost. Anyway, just a little just a little public civic activism for your listeners. It's good, though, because that's how it should be, especially considering. Like my schools, they, they allow us to uh, download the books online or we can look at them through the web page. And so yeah. 
since my children never bring home the physical textbook, or it's very rare that they do. Um, I mean, it's That's great. Saving their backs, great. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I, I oh, love that I because that. right, there's no cost to make a digital copy. I mean, it just doesn't cost. Well, and it's, it's extraordinarily cheap to revise it. Yes, exactly. And that's the point. And, so and I guess the text searchable, searchable. So yeah. the question is then, how do you fight this? Well, you need to find out, as with any kind of social, you know, it's a political issue. You have to find out who the decision makers are, and who do the decision makers listen to. Just as kind of a quick little rule of thumb. Uh, in a political kind of situation, like with an elected school board or an elected state legislature, um, not all school boards are elected. That's why I distinguish that. Um, politicians in general are looking at either numbers of people who will vote for or against them or money. Uh, generally speaking, um, money is not going to be the first thing that folks like us are going to be able to come up with. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is gin up a groundswell of support for the kinds of policies that we would like to um, have um, either stopped or or developed. This is what this is what the National Center for Science Education has done for thirty plus years. Uh, we basically have worked with uh, given local activists and state activists the tools um, for how to make um, our you know make make the points that we want like we want evolution in the in the in the textbooks and in the curriculum we do not want religious beliefs masquerading as science in the curriculum or in the textbooks uh, we want science as a way of knowing presented honestly as a naturalistic explanation etc. And we uh, you know we we want to get we we want it to to have the largest number of people holding those views and writing their representatives because the representatives are looking over their shoulders to who votes. So numbers count. And and there's a lot of things that you can find out from NCSE about how to get people to turn out for school board meetings, to write those letters, to call their assemblymen or their school board members or whatever. It's politics. You know, if it was just science, we could all go home. (laughs) We we already won on the science part. That's a no-brainer. There, there's too much politicization of education, and in the United States, you will not be successful unless you realize that you can't just throw science at these problems. You have to think politically as well. Right, yeah. Well, that's great advice, and it makes it very complicated. Well, nobody said that, um, you know... Increasing the amount of critical thinking in this country or increasing the number of science literate people is going to be able to be done with a wave of a wand. (laughs) Haven't found the wand yet, so it's going to take work. (laughs) So there are a lot of skeptics at the moment who dismiss research into Bigfoot and they think that we should be uh, focusing on supposedly more important issues of uh, alternative medicine or dangerous alternative medicine. Uh, and these are certainly important issues. But do you believe that researching Bigfoot is important still? And if so, why? I think that it's a matter of personal interest. There certainly are a lot of people out there who are promoting the idea that Bigfoot is a real creature and they keep, they, they will continue to come up with um, with samples, with footprints, with evidence, with the films, with various sorts of things. And if you want to, you know, if you want to 
encourage critical thinking, those claims need to be examined. Notice I didn't say those claims need to be refuted. Those claims need to be examined because right. that's what we're all about. It's kind of like with the creationists. Um, the creationists have not gone away. They've continued to um, uh, be uh, very concerned about reaching the general public with their views. And they keep coming up with new observations. They, they generally tend to be variations on, on previous themes, certainly. But somebody needs to ha make available in a public place the refutations of these new claims, just as the former claims have been refuted over and over again as well. And it's a matter of personal interest. I think it's extraordinarily important to work on various aspects of science, uh, the applications of science that are being used to defraud the public. Health claims are certainly a, a very big one. And there's other kinds of, you know, perpetual motion machine sorts of things that um, are, should also be um, uh, be examined and uh, refuted when false. Um, yeah, a very good example is, is um, Hal Bidlack and um, James Randi's examinations of the basically dowsing devices that the United States government was purchasing for use in Iraq at checkpoints. These were supposedly... Um, little handheld machines that could tell whether the, the people were armed going through checkpoints. And they were, they were totally worthless. Um, and yet a tremendous amount of money was spent on them without having been properly tested. That was an extraordinary bit of skeptical investigation that had extremely important repercussions. Um, the fellow who made those eventually ended up getting indicted and, and uh, put out of business. But it's a matter of personal interest. You know, I'm, I, I, I applaud Hal for having done that, but I don't have the expertise to do that. Yeah. My expertise is elsewhere. And I don't think we should be criticizing one another for making a contribution in whatever area we can, uh, we, we find we are able to do and interested in doing. I agree. Well, I'm sure you have people on this on this uh, show that don't agree with you, so I'm glad to be agreed. <laughs> well, no, it's true, and and not necessarily on this show, but I mean, I do get contacted from time to time, um, uh, and I certainly read uh, not necessarily about me in particular, but I, I read a lot of people who are dismissive of uh, anybody researching the paranormal. Uh, not that Bigfoot necessarily needs to be paranormal, but as you mentioned, there are people who interpret yeah. it that way. Yeah, and. Um, I think the thing is, is whether or not um, Bigfoot is real and whether or not if it were real, if it is paranormal, people make claims that it is so and believe that it is so. And I, 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 I think I've, I think I've mentioned before on the show that I think in in cryptozoology, you see all of the world of human belief writ small. You can the skills you can forge dealing with people who think they've seen a monster uh, and trying to help them think about that and, you know, evaluate it rationally are, are the same sort of skills you could use to determine whether or not uh, a medical claim is real or, or whether or not someone is lying to you. I mean, these are all, I mean, this, the skills can be learned there and hopefully with a little bit less acrimony than some of the bigger questions that we sometimes get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great way. Like I said, I, I encourage teachers to use um, various forms of pseudoscience as a way of teaching how to think scientifically. Um, people are interested in uh, the paranormal. They're interested in things like dowsing or Bigfoot or uh, UFOs or whatever. 
but they need to have some models of how to think critically about them. Um, clearly, somebody who believes that they have been abducted by an alien is going to be very difficult to shake, and because that he he or she has had a personal experience that has been extraordinarily meaningful, and it will be very very difficult to make any changes in that person's view. But what about the people whom that person talks to? Uh, that that's 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 it's the audience that I'm more interested in. To what degree will people believe? the abductees claims, or can we encourage the audience, the people outside of that experience, can we encourage them to practice good mental habits, shall we say, of, of uh, collecting information and critically examining information and testing information and doing the kind of classic, if this is the case, then we'd expect that. Okay, let's go back and see if we find that. And then if we do or do not, then perhaps the original claim is false. I mean, there are ways of testing claims of um, about the natural world that don't necessarily require a bench and a bunch of test tubes. I mean, some of it can be done in um, a much more informal but still rigorous way. And I think we need to encourage asking those kinds of questions and applying those kinds of skill. Oh, oh. Uh in CSE, talk a little bit about what's going on with that organization right now. Well, actually, I, I'm no longer on the advisory board of NCSE, okay. uh, but I do volunteer oh. down there. <laughs> I try to go in a couple of times a week to help out in the archives, and I've been enjoying that very much. I've been going through some of the old papers. I'm, I, I told myself after I retired that I would write a uh, a, a detailed history of NCSE. And I have had a lot of distractions and haven't quite gotten around to uh, to doing that yet. I'm going to try to do that this coming year. Um, but that has been a lot of fun. And, and NCSC, it's a good opportunity for me to see my former colleagues uh, a couple times a week and uh, visit with them. And um, they're all keeping very, very busy with um, uh, the creationism and climate change issues. They've uh, NCSC has uh, changed directions a bit under new director uh, Ann Reed. They're going much more in an educational um, direction. They're doing much more work within with with teachers specifically, and doing a lot more teacher support and uh, trying to get ideas directly to teachers. So it's a very exciting time for NCSC, and they're doing great. So anybody That's listening wonderful. should go to ncse.com and become a member because this is a very uh, helpful organization for improving the understanding of science and critical thinking, which is what we create, what we skeptics are really interested in. And I'll put Absolutely. a link to that in the show notes. Yep. Thanks. Great. And this is just our final question, uh, Jeannie. We always ask our guests on the show uh, to mention their favorite monster. So Jeannie, what's your favorite monster? I guess I'm going to have to go with Bigfoot because I am a physical anthropologist after all. <laughs> and the the notion that a gigantopithecus could be lumbering around is just such a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to go with that. Although it's probably not a real monster. If it really were, it would be probably a fairly shy, um, leaf-eating creature like gorillas, which are hardly, hardly monstrous at all. Yeah, We've it, got a very broad definition of monsters for the show. We do. Oh, yeah. We do. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the spirit. That's a good one, though. Do you um, – I, I have not read a lot about it beyond – outside of the cryptozoology 
and I know it, there were actual real papers about it. But uh, what, do you know if there's any um, consensus on whether or not it was bipedal or quadrupedal? I mean, it seems like... Um, oh, I, I, oh, a Gigantopithecus? Yeah, it seems like I've seen more pe- people suspecting it was more of a orangutan type uh, in its locomotion. The thing about Giganto is that there are no postcranial or, or bones below the head. Yeah, that's, uh, we only yeah. <laughs> we only have dental and and uh, jaw bones, uh, maxillary wow. mandibles. There are no postcranial skeletons. Um, we don't know what kind of legs or uh, arms or joints or, a- or ankles or wrists. All those kinds of uh, give me good pelvis. That's what I really want. Um, all those parts of the body that would tell us something about locomotive locomotion and, and other aspects of behavior. You know. One of the things that anthropologists and other organismic biologists uh, have discovered over the years is you can learn a tremendous amount about an animal's behavior and ecology just from the bones, uh, more than most people would think just offhand. The fact that we have these extremely huge teeth and jaws tells us that this allows us to scale up this creature to get an approximate idea of of its stature. But it doesn't tell us anything about two legs, four legs, um, whether it um, was, uh, uh, it was we, would, we, we would be fairly safe to say it was terrestrial because as big as it would be given this, the uh, teeth and jaws, it would be too heavy, frankly, to get around in trees like gorillas really don't spend very much in tr- time in trees either. But what it ate, well, teeth can tell you a little bit about that. But uh, the, given the kind of teeth that uh, Gigantopithecus has, it seems more like a vegetarian diet than an omnivorous diet. But um, there's much more to be learned. And it, it would certainly be wonderful to get some more postcranial material from this creature. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day. <laughs> well, th- thank you so much for, for spending a time with us today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. It was incredibly interesting. And you've, you've been a hero of mine for a long time. So, I mean, I've, I've oh, talked to you a couple of times in person, but it's, it's really nice to have you on here. Yeah, thank a... you so much. I enjoyed it very much. And, and it, it's a fun podcast, and I'm just very, very pleased you asked me to, to spend this time with you. Thanks. Well, thanks. Uh, we've wanted to have you on here for a long time. Monster Dog. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard Kieran Stolzno and I interview Eugenie Scott about Bigfoot skepticism. I believe talking about monsters is a great way to get people to think about science, but I don't believe it's the only way. If you have ideas about how to promote science and critical thinking, take action. Things get better when we actually do something instead of just thinking about it. John Horgan's article about skepticism was quite critical of tribalism, and he's right. Tribalism is one kind of in-group, out-group thinking that can keep people apart. But the flip side of that is community. And whether you want to be part of a closed tribe or a vibrant community is up to you. I would again urge you to go to monstertalk.org and check the show notes for links to Horgan's article and the very interesting responses it generated. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The ideas and views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Well, well I told you that this uh, this substitute earphone, or I mean headset, was not the best, and it does slide around a bit, so I'm glad that somebody is listening and telling me to make adjustments when necessary. Case in point, you just... <laughs> yeah, definitely fading okay. out there, but we've got oh, the interview done, so <laughs> we're good. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.